Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. This is The Draft, a reading show. Each session, Lighthouse instructors recruit members from the current workshops to read on a given topic in front of a live audience. This past December, our topic was The Edge. Our readers tonight include essayist Regina Drexler, poet Bryn Downing, novelist Sean McCarthy, and short fiction writer Deanne Gertner. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Andrea Dupree, and that's Mike Henry. Welcome to our draft 12.0, our volunteer appreciation party, several people's birthday party, um, Marie's graduation party. I mean, anybody have a birthday? uh, Some already came and went. Oh, you guys do? (laughs) So tonight, we are doing the draft 12.0. We have four amazing people up to read and it's going to be it's going to be so absorbing that you're not going to want it to end but it is going to end and we promise it's it's, it's gonna this, my... this is really going to end soon it really is it really is and i'm going to start by um introducing a woman who who is one of my best friends in the world and is a great writer and a great role model and a terrific mother and she is going to be introducing and this is Jenny Itell (laughs) who's going to be introducing one of my favorite people Regina Drexler but I'll let her do it I'm not going to steal her thunder I purposely left my notes on the car thinking I know what I'm going to say and then I drank a glass of wine um I know, but I think it'll come. <laughs> I hope it comes back to me. Um, I met Regina a couple months ago when I was fortunate enough to get to um, cover Andrea Dupree's um, advanced writing the short story class while she was away at McDowell. And um, I hadn't taught in light- at Lighthouse for a while, so I was nervous. And in my nervousness, I'd planned out this long agenda for um, the first two hours, the first session. Um, and then in walked Regina and um, I think two other people um, bearing bottles of wine and I immediately remembered kind of the lighthouse um, spirit and what maybe lighthouses is, is can be summed up or so often about is um just great conversation and debate among just really smart talented writers um, so I got to experience that again over the last uh, couple months and one of those talented writers that I got to read is um, Regina um, and what she's going to read from tonight, the story she's going to read from, or um, it's actually a work of creative nonfiction that she's going to read from tonight, some excerpts, um, is a wonderful piece that really speaks for itself, you'll see. But before I turn it over to her, I just wanted to say that I so admire in this piece that you're going to hear um, her ability to, to mix humor with seriousness and also sadness so seamlessly. Um, And I also admire that she took what I think could be read um, or told as just a funny, lighthearted, tell it over a glass of wine kind of story and gave it so much depth 
and uh, resonance. It really resonates for me as, as a work, and um, uh, it's not a, a something I'm going to soon forget that I've, that I've read. And so I admire her so much as a writer. I think you'll like what you're going to hear, um, the ex this excerpt from this creative nonfiction piece. And then finally, before I turn it over to her, I wanted to um, remind people to pick up the a copy when it comes out of the next Colorado Review, because um, Regina has an essay coming out in that issue. So, I'll leave it to Regina. I like it here a lot. <laughs> I, I accidentally started waving to the mannequin, or mannequins really, but only one ever seemed to wave back. The mannequin would be important to the story, but I didn't know that as I waved. The mannequin belonged to my new neighbor, Linda, but she would not be important to the story, except that she had a gun. <laughs> I never saw it, but she once told our other neighbor, Mitch, that she had one. She told him about the gun after his dog somehow got free and ran into her house. She said she would shoot his dog the next time it came into her house. I believed her, and Mitch did too. She was the type of person who would have a gun and shoot a dog. She liked cats. <laughs> Linda actually owned three mannequins. I didn't realize there were so many until I found myself on her porch one early summer afternoon surrounded by them. They were fully dressed, all in winter coats despite the winter, uh, the weather, seemingly having a tea party. Two were seated together with porcelain teacups in front of them. The other one was upright, supported by a solid metal stand connected at her torso. She was holding up one hand, seemingly in friendly greeting to passers-by. I stole the mannequin from my friend Dina. Since I waved to the mannequin and confided that small embarrassment to her, Dina and I joked about stealing it. We would have to get drunk first, of course, and then we would take her. It became a well-worn subject of conversation over the next several years, yet there was never a clear understanding of our intentions with respect to the mannequin once we had her. <laughs> but on the morning of the day that the for sale sign was placed in Dina's yard, the plan for the mannequin suddenly crystallized. At least, at least for me. I would steal the mannequin and place her next to the for sale sign in Dina's yard. I would use the mannequin to showcase the home, just like the models on The Price is Right. Of course, I should have probably considered the potentially deterrent effect of a mannequin, dressed in full winter garb on a warm summer afternoon, on a prospective home buyer. <laughs> And probably I should have also considered the related potentially detrimental effect of the mannequin on the mood of Dina's husband, should he discover it before she did. But I didn't consider either of these things, and instead, as the morning wore on, I became more and more committed to my plan. So that by the time Linda was leaving for her four-hour nursing shift in the early afternoon, I had become convinced that there simply could be no higher or better use for a mannequin. <laughs> Dina was planning to move out of our old, well-established neighborhood to a new tract house in a sprawling development about 20 miles away. She would say that she was relocating so she and her husband would have a bigger home in which to raise their two growing boys. But I understood that she was also moving to try to get a fresh start, believing things would be better with her husband simply by changing settings. I had tried that too. I also understood that she was moving to distance herself from her feelings for Rachel. For years before I stole the mannequin, I thought Rachel, Dina, and I were in a three-way best friendship. But Rachel and Dina called each other sister friends. No one ever called me that. At the time, I thought that was because each of them, otherwise sisterless, understood that I, having four actual sisters, 
was not in need of any more. But now, and it, <laughs> and, it, and it seems so obvious, I understand it meant I was not in any kind of three-way best friendship at all. They were sister friends, and I was not. At some point, though, Dina fell in love with Rachel. Dina, Dina did not want it to be, excuse me, Dina did not want to be in love with her, of course, but that didn't change the fact that she was. And it may have been that Dina was more afraid of Rachel than in love with her. Sometimes, though, there is such a close relationship between fear and love that it is hard to tell the difference. At least it was for both Dina and me. As I struggled to get the metal stand loose from the mannequin's torso under the cover of Linda's shaded porch, I quickly understood that the task of stealing the mannequin was going to be more difficult than I first imagined. <laughs> when I finally managed to break her free from the stand, I realized she was taller than me by at least two inches, heavy and quite difficult to manage, particularly given her bulky winter clothes. I would first need to make sure the coast was clear, that no one would see me take the mannequin from the porch and across my lawn to my backyard gate. I considered the idea that I could simply act confident about it, as though Linda had requested that I remove the mannequins one by one from her porch that afternoon. But then I remembered Linda's gun and decided a <laughs> and I decided a covert operation would be my best option. I checked my watch. I only had an hour before I had to pick up my sons from their elementary school. I had to work fast. As I was about to load the mannequin into my car, I considered that Dina's house was on 17th Avenue, a, a busy street. I decided that pulling the mannequin out of the passenger side of my SUV would afford better cover than removing her from the back. I put her in the car, lying across the rear seat, covering my younger son's booster. But as I tried to close the door, I found her feet and high heels were blocking it. I, I quickly readjusted her, slanting her more sideways on the back seat. Although I heard a small pop, I pushed the door closed with force and drove to Dina's. The small sound was not insignificant, though. As I discovered in removing the mannequin from my car, as I was lifting her from the back seat, she came apart at her midsection. On 17th Avenue, with traffic speeding by, I found myself holding only the top half of the mannequin. I looked over her shoulder into the back seat. She had been wearing a house dress of some kind underneath her coat, which when removed with her torso, left the lower half of her body completely naked, save for her red high heels. I was holding her upper body, awkward with heavy clothing, trying to determine my next move. In retrospect, my next move should have been to put the top half of her back in my car and speed away. But you never do what you should have done in retrospect. Instead, I pulled the top half of the mannequin, dragging her by her armpits along the ground as if rescuing her from a burning aircraft. <laughs> to the for sale sign planted in Dina's lawn. I quickly ran back to retrieve the rest of her from my back seat. As I was sitting on Dina's lawn with the two halves displayed before me, and as cars were starting to slow down as they passed <laughs> to assess the scene, I decided to change my approach from covert to confident. <laughs> I started acting like I was supposed to be on Dina's lawn, lifting the house dress of the mannequin to better calculate how to reassemble her. I acted with assurance as I picked up her naked lower body, turned her at a 90 degree, 90 degree angle to match up the latching system at her midsection, and twisted her body back together. I calmly stood her up next to the sign, smoothing out her, her dress and coat, and adjusting her winter hat. 
She started to slowly tip over, but I righted her quickly. Only when she started slumping over again did I notice I had attached her together backwards. <laughs> With her feet pointed 180 degrees from the direction of her sharp, pointy breasts. She was unstable, but I had no time to fix her. After propping her up a final time, I calmly walked back to the car, got in, and went to pick up my sons from school. A short time after I stole the mannequin for Dina, it is important to say that I slept with Rachel. It's funny. Funny, I know. Very funny. It seems, it's, it seems like I should admit that, even though we didn't do everything there was to do. I'm not sure what to call it if I don't say that we slept together. We hooked up, we messed around in a bed, and then we fell asleep. But there was no penetration, if that's the standard. I have no idea what the standard is. Whatever it was, I want to say that I slept with her so that there's no question about what it is that I should be ashamed of. It was a betrayal of Dina, and I don't want to try to minimize it now by pointing to everything we could have done but did not do. Of course, I want to get some credit for saying, for being able to pull away from Rachel long enough to say, we shouldn't do this, we need to stop. I want there to be some appreciation for how hard that was to do. And when Rachel, smiling and pulling me back, asked, oh yeah, why? I also want to get credit for saying Dina. And I want even more credit for not then also saying, because Dina is in love with you. I will not get credit for any of these things, though, because when Rachel answered, we can't think about her now, and pulled me back again, I simply shrugged, because her statement seemed so logical, and slept with her anyway. So there will be no credit given, and instead there will be a consequence for my betrayal. And there should be, I know, as much as I don't want to deserve one. As the afternoon went on, Linda's usual four-hour nursing shift seemed entirely too short. Finally, my phone rang. It was Dina explaining she had left work to pick up her sons from school and wanted to come over for an afternoon play date and a drink. Okay, I said, which is what I always said. I was hoping she would drive by her house on the way to mine, but after I opened the door and let her and her sons in, it was clear she had not yet seen the mannequin. The next, the next call came from Rachel, also asking to bring her sons over for a play date. The first hour or so of the play date was uneventful, but as it got closer and closer to 5.30, when Linda was scheduled to return home, I grew more and more concerned about the mannequin and the gun. <laughs> And then Dina's husband called her. He told her that their neighbor had called him about a body. <laughs> in their front yard, and she should go home to meet the police, whom he planned to call next. <laughs> I started waving at Dina, who was still on the phone with her husband, and quickly said, it was me, it's the mannequin, it was a joke. <laughs> Dina smiled, then looked stricken as she listened to her husband rant. I understood then, at 5.15, that I had to go retrieve the mannequin immediately. Before Dina's husband or the police arrived at the scene, my fingerprints being all over even the most private parts of the mannequin, <laughs> I left Dina in my house, futilely trying to explain the humor of the mannequin to her husband as I ran to my car. Unfortunately, my eight-year-old son was following closely behind me, asking, what's wrong, Mama? Where are you going? And in my most proud mothering moment to date, and not having the time to try to convince him to stay with Dina for five freaking minutes, I said, hurry, get in the car, get in the car.
We have to go get something I took and put it back where I found it right away. <laughs> and of course, he had a million questions on the three-minute car ride to Dina's house, which were mostly just variations of, is it stealing against the law? <laughs> and what were you thinking? As I pulled up and saw the mannequin lying face and ass down in Dina's yard. I told my son to wait in the car. I ran to get her and as I struggled to carry her under my arm back to the car, my son, thoughtfully, opened the back hatch for our getaway. I heaved her inside and, heaved her inside and sped back home. It was 525. I ran across my front yard with the mannequin in the direction of Linda's porch. My son was trailing just behind me, still insisting on answers to his questions about the legalities of it all. <laughs> As I was running back to the porch, the mannequin somehow lost her hat and wig. I started pleading with my son frantically, please, will you just grab the hair, grab the hair. <laughs> and he did because he is a good boy and he loves <laughs> And he loves me. He had become my accomplice. We put the mannequin back on her stand on Linda's porch, and we agreed that stealing was a very bad idea. <laughs> Shortly after I slept with her, Rachel would point to my mannequin stealing as the first evidence that I had become emotionally unbalanced <laughs> and was not acting right. Rachel would need for me to be seen as not acting right. To Rachel then, I became all of the things that she was most afraid of being. If I was unstable, she was not. If I was the lesbian, then she didn't have to be. If I was a bad mother, she could finally be a good one. Stealing the mannequin had been a joke, of course, but because I stole the mannequin for Dina, Rachel would eventually cite it in the custody battle that ensued with my husband as we were divorcing as evidence that I had involved my son in criminal activity. Rachel obviously felt hurt, first by the close friendship developing between me and Dina, and later as a result of her confused feelings about me. With respect to the latter, to be fair, it is also likely that she felt scared. But for Rachel, any uncomfortable feeling, whether fear or hurt or otherwise, would only ever come out as anger. Don't ask me why this was so. There are simply people like this. In her, angle, in her anger, Rachel, Rachel commenced my undoing. It started seemingly unprompted one day when she suddenly appeared to avoid talking to me. I slowly noticed that other people too, once friendly, started to avoid me. It took me some time to figure out what was happening. My delay, in some, my delay was in some part attributable to my unwillingness to believe that I was expendable, that I offered nothing, friendship or otherwise, that she was not willing to sacrifice. Denial seemed to provide the only viable form of self-protection. Dina was never angry at Rachel because she slept with me. Dina had always been afraid that Rachel would hurt her. She was emotionally prepared for that. In contrast, though, Dina trusted me. It was the same way I felt about her. And what we both learned nearly simultaneously was that although it is very painful when someone you love hurts you, it breaks your heart only when someone you trust does. Because I had broken her heart, Dina was not inclined to defend me against Rachel's allegations. To Dina then also, I was expendable. I became lost in the idea that I was worth so little to people I valued so much. I still get lost in every part of that. In the end, it would be Rachel who would take Dina from me. Rachel and Dina would remain friends, and my consolation would always only be that it is an unstable friendship, 
forever put together ass backwards. It was built mostly of fear rather than love, and it would always be that way. And even with all the time in the world, there would be no way to fix it. I believe that was a standing O. <laughs> and this is what we get to do at Lighthouse, so nani nani, or nuni nini. Um, the next person up is one of our core wonderful instructors who's going to be introducing one of his novelists. Um, He's got his own novel coming out again soon. He's kissing his wife passionately, which means he has everything. He has everything. And so does Kat. Thanks, Kat. Um, Doug Kurtz. Hello. Thanks, Andrea. I remembered my notes. So I'm here to introduce Sean McAfee. He's going to be reading from his first novel, The End of the Road. It's a thriller five years in the works. Um, when I asked Sean what keeps him writing, he said, it's like golf. <laughs> you get a hole in one and you're suddenly back at it, even if it's been a miserable month. I love when something gets my heart racing. With that, here's a synopsis of his novel. John Washington, a Chicago detective nearing retirement, loses his son to a rare blood disease and his marriage collapses. When he finds out his nephew has the same condition but a chance at a cure, if they can come up with the money, John enlists the help of his ex-partner, Pat Carmichael. When Carmichael's scheme to rob a drug dealer goes awry, John is forced to go on the run. With a new identity, he heads to Key West and finds a home among the lost and hiding at a bar called The End of the Road. John settles into a new life there and finds new love, but his past in Chicago is just one step behind him. The scene you're going to hear takes place as John gets his new identity. Forger Tebow creates not only new documents, but the database signatures and social networking history that a modern-day life requires. Here's Sean. I feel like Linus about to explain the meaning of Christmas up here. <laughs> Can you hear me? There we go. The plan had never exactly been foolproof, but he had been desperate. Now his ex-partner and a drug dealer were lying dead in a burning warehouse on the south side. There was a gym bag with $500,000 in it on the floor beneath his feet, and he was waiting for help from a convicted felon. He closed his eyes. He was exhausted. Only yesterday, he had been a decorated detective with the Chicago Police Department. Only yesterday, his captain had asked him where he wanted to have his retirement party. Only yesterday, he had been John Washington. It had been a hell of a night. <laughs> a hand on his shoulder brought him back to reality. Mr. McIntyre? Who? He thought. He shook his head slowly. Oh, me. He must have dozed off. Dreams of gunshots, fire, and smoke. A man down? He opened his eyes. Mr. McIntyre, you're all ready. A pretty woman stood next to him, 
holding out a thick envelope. Your new identity. He took it and noticed that his new self really wasn't as heavy as he would have thought it would be. <laughs> My boss asked, asked that you stop by before you go. She waited while John stood, then led him to his old friend's office. All right, man, Thomas Tebow Grant said after pouring them each a coffee. You're set. At least you got all I can do for you. Everything you need to get started is in that envelope. Oh, and check this out. He swung the computer monitor on his desk around to face John. There was a Facebook page with John's photo, but the name John McIntyre instead of his own. John had never had much use for social networking himself, but he had used the site more than once while tracking someone. He scanned the page. T had made him single, living in Boston. Under the photo was, don't friend me, I'll friend you. He had 11 friends, two of which were fairly attractive women. He had recently posted a generic-looking photo titled Sunset in the Park, to which one of his imaginary friends had replied, love it, you should be a professional photographer, smiley face. <laughs> he saw that he was a fan of Internal Quality Controls, Inc. Internal Quality Controls? John asked. One of my shell companies, T answered. You're in security there. It seemed to fit. John leaned back and took the rest of his coffee in one gulp. This was too much. But what else could he do? I know, it's a lot to take in, T said, spinning the monitor back to face him. He leaned back in his chair. I wish you'd tell me what's going on with you and why you're doing this, Wash. Or should I call you Mac? Damn it, T, this isn't funny. And I can't tell you, I'm, I'm not sure myself. Tebow held up his hands and dropped a smile. You go ahead and be secretive then. Not like we haven't been friends since forever. All I know is, you in trouble, and even if I wasn't charging you, I'd do this. You're my man, you know that. Sorry, T, I I'm just stressed. No sweat, T replied. This isn't a vacation, right? Look, you got plenty of smarts. You'll be okay. But know this, if you decide to go all the way and really disappear, you can't never come back. You got to sever all connection with John Washington and your former life. You'll never see Charlene, your sister, your friends, Never. Uh, John started. Shush, T interrupted. Remember when I went into prison the first time? You sat with me and gave me the dope on everything. That helped, John. Your advice, knowing you had my back, got me through my time. I'm going to do the same for you. John sat back and waited. This is straight, man, T continued. It's a lifetime of lies. Every little social interaction you have will be false and you'll feel it. There'll be doubt and fear in the simplest things like registering a car or going to the doctor. You ain't you anymore, John. Now, if I remember, you still a fool for those Cubs for some reason I can't fathom. Not anymore. Pick another team and not from Chicago. I know the Red Sox will hurt, but it's the best choice given the hometown we created for you. John nodded slowly, thinking that he needed to get further from Chicago, and soon. But T was just getting revved up. Other problems. How do I date? How do I not tell people where I'm from? Some days you're going to want to loosen up, relax a little, have a drink, have some fun. He leaned forward, serious. Don't. <laughs> the bottom line, T continued, is that whoever you are hiding from can make a thousand mistakes. You only have to make one. But detective, you already know that. John did. Maybe the only advantage he had in this was that he had been in the role of hunter before. He knew psychological studies of people on the run or in hiding said they were likely to feel severe social distress and a pervasive sense of powerlessness <laughs> from their constant deceptions. The strain of the social fabric being torn, the dislocation of being erased from one place and recreated in another, 
inevitably created psychological issues, issues that almost always led to capture. John let out a long sigh. You're not getting rid of your burdens, John, whatever they might be. You're swapping them out for another, hopefully lesser set. He smiled again. On the bright side, you get to erase some of your more embarrassing moments, like that time in junior high when you came on to that drag queen. <laughs> John laughed for the first time that night, and it felt good. Hey, you guys didn't know it was a dude either, and I was the only one with the balls back then to try and get laid. Oh, I, okay, I can't argue with that, he said, laughing too. He pointed to the envelope in John's lap. Now, what you got in that packet? This is just temporary stuff. Should be good for a couple of months if you keep your head down. In six or seven weeks, I'll get you the real deal, stuff that can last forever, if that's what you want to do. He paused and narrowed his eyes. You know, most people come to me with a bit more of a plan, John. You know me, T. Shoot from the hip. John, I gotta be honest, that attitude won't help you. I know, I know. Truth was, John didn't know. These were uncharted waters, as his grandfather would have said, and besides not having a map, he didn't even know his destination. Anyway, said T, pulling a cell phone from a drawer, here's a prepaid, a burner. You call me in about two months when you settled. He powered on the phone and pushed a few buttons. That's my number in there. I'll tell you where to get your goods, then toss it. Goods? John asked. Hey, man, since 9-11, everything tight. We call what you got there bads, and I can still roll them out like always. But goods, the docs that can pass electronic scanning, survive a hard trace, that takes time, work, and money. Hell, just for a driver's license, I have to send somebody with a good birth certificate and shit to another city, get him to take the test and sit for the photo, then change out for your picture. We can't even use DMVs that take fingerprints now. On the plus side, with technology, it's easier to propagate and grow an identity. Databases, search engines, all that. And once one agency verifies something, all of them accept it as verified. Sounds like your business has become a lot more difficult, John said. No shit. It's not just the popo or some private detective looking these days. The entire U.S. government is monitoring everything, looking for fakes. Of course, they're looking for terrorists, but that doesn't help a simple runner like you who gets caught up in it. Main reason I'm looking to retire, brother. Besides, we're not young anymore. Speak for yourself, John said. T stood and started pacing. I'm not kidding. A guy our age, we got to drum up a whole history for you. Ex-wives, lots of jobs. Hmm, maybe you drink too much and get fired a lot. <laughs> Fine, T, I get it. I need to get going. T glanced at his monitor. Oh, yeah, 5 a.m. already? No rest for the wicked. We got your car gassed and ready. We fed that dog you got in there. I hate to sound cruel, but you're going to have to dump him at a shelter. Right, John thought. Not likely. Not my son's dog. T picked up a paperweight and tossed it back and forth between his hands. Wash, I've been doing this a long time. I've seen people succeed, and to be honest, I've seen more, than, more of them fail. It's not that hard to get gone, especially with the quality product I produce. The hard part is to stay gone. I've thought about this a lot. I think the trick is something your grandmother used to tell us when we was little. Golden rule. You have to behave in a way that makes everyone around you want you to succeed. Work hard, be nice, stay under the radar. Don't give anyone a reason to want to harm you, and go slow. John felt a momentary twinge. There were a hell of a lot of people who wanted to harm him, to harm him now. 
Then he realized that no one, no one at all, wanted to harm John McIntyre. He needed to keep it that way, at least until he got the money to his sister. T walked around the desk and embraced John. Be good, but more important, be careful. I don't want to hear from you again until you are ready for the goods. And then he pushed himself away and kept his eyes focused over John's shoulder. And then, if you're in as much trouble as I think you are, I don't ever want to hear from you again. And that is a cliffhanger, everyone. Um, this next person up is introducing somebody fairly new to Lighthouse, who I'm already a huge fan of. Um, and this instructor himself, I'm a huge fan of too. His most recent collection is Asleep Beneath the Hill of Dreams, Mr. Chris Rancic. <laughs> Hey, this is fun, right? Stories on a winter night. This is what, what it's all about. Um, the, uh, our reader, that, the reader that I'm introducing, Bryn Downing, uh, I'll tell you that the uh, poetry workshop this fall was full, and I got an email message from Andrea saying, could you just please let one more person in? She really, really, really wants in, and she's new. And, I said, yeah, oh, sure, okay. Um, and on the first night, uh, everyone brought in some original work, and uh, I found myself after class driving down University Boulevard, heading home, still trying to work her poem out. And that's always a good sign, it was, uh, and it was with me. And then she did it again the next week, and I thought, okay, this is somebody we need to bring in and read for the draft. So um, Bryn says uh, here, by her, by her own uh, um, introduction, uh, Bryn Downing, a New, New Jersey native, began writing under the influences of punk music and books about angsty teenage boys <laughs> and the girls who love them. Those influences have grown to include Kenneth Patchen, Nick Flynn, Philip Larkin, and Richard Seekin. Uh, in the past year, she's been published by Spectre Literary Magazine and Issue Zero, an expert in evasive zombie tactics. Uh, <laughs> She is a lover of tea and beer and situations when they can be drunk together, and is there any other kind? But uh, anyway, give it up for Bryn Downing. Thank you. Oh, God. Um, can you all hear me? Awesome. So this one, um, I'll be reading a couple of poems, some of them a little bit more polished than others. Uh, and this first one is called Naming of Things. Meaning short nose, Norman, or from the aristocratic English surname, I am sister to plain, battlefield, Scottish English, or from Driston, riot, turmoil, Welsh, English, Celtic, all of us found in soap operas. I'm the bitch ice queen. My brother, the tragic hero, with smoldering eyes. My sister, mysterious, often mistaken for another. How much is determined by our names? If I'd had another or was not the daughter of the feminine, born again, French, 
Or who is like God, Hebrew, the E-L ending? Would I have carried myself differently? All those things not chosen by us, but for us. Was it the places that did us in? Too much time spent in towns named after dead words. Too many streets named after invasive plants. That old game. Your first pet and the street you grew up on. Which one do I choose? What if it's the time? Would we have done better in petticoats, the expectation of stoicism, or with only moonshine to command our sorrows, jugs to break? Too busy fighting off predators to give each other any name but our plain expectations. Father, provider, mother, comforter, wife, husband, child, friend, listen and tell. Frog parts. In spring, the ones the cats don't eat get squished and dried. They become paper versions of themselves, the outline of a frog frozen by headlights. They take on the shape of a biology tray, for every frog is a dead frog, its stomach opened for me. I learn the heart's chambers, how blood pushed from one arm to the other, the smell of pig's liver preserved by formaldehyde. Paul kept the cow's eye, cerulean retina, wrapped in a tissue, stuffed in his pocket, sheep's heart, brain, inchworm, a fetal pig that came from a bucket, extra points for identifying a deformation, correctly declaring the sex, the small things we killed without meaning to, a captured ladybug that beat herself to death. When I found her again, all that remained was blood and wings. The light flicked on, the moth that died yearning against the glass. Boy sees girl. You want to give everyone the finger, even the man in the wheelchair. <laughs> Boy sees girl, and she's always a walk-on with a non-speaking part to his superman. Compliments hailing from trucks and street corner men. It's an honor. A mouthy girl turns into a dead girl, or a bitch, and they might be the same thing. So you don't make eye contact. Don't respond. Sit where the bus driver can see you. Take a picture, tell a policeman, who'll tell you there's nothing he can do. Make sure you walk with a man, and the cheers will congratulate because he must have won you. Ignore them. Be passive, because raped is a state of being, an adjective, not a verb, not something that can be controlled. Leave the house tomorrow. Pretend you don't have eyes, ears, flesh, soft parts. There's a steel rod in your back. Go home, lie in bed, and shake. Okay. This is the roughest of them all, so be kind. Uh, part of you is made out of rock. Fingers like smoked sacks, eyes like slush melting away, 
Liver spots grew to oil slicks, his mouth crumbled inwards. Egg salad sandwiches, a watery laugh, a stereo system that rumbled and fuzzed. The wake, the funeral, the casseroles. Potatoes, pasta, hot dogs floating in pans. It was almost easy to forget why we were there. The facts of the man turned into story to tell the friends of friends, all dressed in summer blacks. The museums of uncertain pasts we build for ourselves. He is your grandfather and I am like you. Praying for the death of someone I am supposed to love because he is bringing us down. And because I love him, I offer my own years. I don't know how many I lost, but he died. And my grandmother followed him because I did not pray for her, could not, would not. When we die, let there be no tears or dirt to fall into and stain our knees. Let us tell stories and comfort ourselves with words. So this is um, sick, S-I-C, to clarify. <laughs> she killed a German with her bare hands once and then just went on living. A collaborator, good as a Nazi, she shrugged. There was no sense in waving a soldier goodbye and not fighting herself, which was brave for that time and now. Impoverished childhood, father left. A husband killed by Vichy France. Sold her medals to live off the proceeds. These are facts, but they are not what I want to know. I want the times to ask how it felt. Did the woman's bones crack? Did her lips really go blue? Were her eyes open? Did you close yours? Were you in the woods, a farmhouse, a city street? I do not want to know Nancy Wake was beautiful. I want to hear if the white mouse went to church, where she was when France was won. Did she sag or smile prettily and order another tea? Man with a 1996 Ford Mustang, arrested. <laughs> the weight pulls the trunk down in the back, rides low on the axle, presses a knot into your gut, but there is no stopping. It is hours to Florida from North Carolina, and longer with a girl in the trunk, her arms stiffening around her face, her knees locked and stuck, a smear of her on the door, your thigh. A neck crack, a no, an accident, a car and two teenagers, sex and death, a kind of love behind beach dunes before drop-offs in the woods, the only places to be truly alone with each other. Hear that hook on the ceiling, those cracks in the bushes, that shape underwater, a scraping from the back seat, fingers pressing sweat to the glass, Gear shift in the soft of your stomach. Stick to the leather. The radio playing Mandy to cover up the sound of skin. Thank you.
what's with all these people and all their talent? That is amazing. Now everybody else is a fan of you too. Um, so the, the final reader tonight, and uh, Mike just jotted me a note saying that I never even introduced what the draft really is, but you all know, right? We're, okay. Um, the final reader tonight was drafted by Paula Younger, who unfortunately couldn't be here, and she described why she couldn't be here as some sort of hellish kind of Santa train thing for her child that she said is the worst thing imaginable, but she has to do it. And it's going to be memories, memories for her child and pictures and Santa and stuff. Um, so she couldn't be here, but she really wanted to, um, to have Deanne Gertner read. And here's what she wrote. Uh, writers like Deanne are part of what makes teaching at Lighthouse fun. I've watched her writing evolve in our short story classes. Deanne was always talented, of course, and perceptive and enthusiastic, but she's also willing to take risks and have fun with her stories, something we don't always remember to do as writers. Her stories range from a blind man in danger of losing his home because of his massive Braille book collection. Oh my God, I want to read that. <clears throat> to a lonely man who searches for sexual connections on Craigslist. And now you're going to, hear, to, hear, to get to hear another Deanne Gertner original and my favorite, Lost in Turkey. You'll never look at a turkey the same way again. <laughs> The best thing about Deanne, though, is that even though she's now, I mean, this is kind of a phenomenon at Lighthouse. She's now in an MFA program and still at Lighthouse. She still values hanging out here at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. So welcome, Deanne. Hello. So this is Lost in Turkey. The mother never could get used to cleaning the turkey, ramming her hand up the poor decapitated beast's ass to pull out the plastic bag of neck, gizzards, heart, and liver. As she spread the animal's legs apart, shy yet bold like a good OBGYN, and stabbed her hand into the cavity, chills ran down her spine and goosebumps sprouted on her arms. Thank God this happened only once a year. The bag belched as it passed through the cloaca, and she had to take deep breaths to keep from gagging. She transferred the hollowed-out turkey to the sink for a quick rinse, a whore's bath, as her mother would say, and, and scooped the stuffing, Stouffer's, the mix she grew up on, not that German-inspired white raisin candy walnut slop that her ex-husband forced her to make, his mother's recipe, into an envelope of cheesecloth, gathered the ends, and tied the whole thing up like a deformed present. Then she spread the legs again, a second violation, and wedged the stuffing inside. Next, she massaged the flesh. It reminded her of applying sunscreen to her ex's flabby chest, belly, and back. Yes, but now the worst, the molestation was over. She didn't mind slathering butter over every millimeter of the animal's skin, paying extra attention to the crevices between the wings and legs. She rummaged through the junk drawer for an embroidery needle and whip-stitched the hole shut, unconsciously squeezing her buttocks as she did so. 
She wrapped the string around the bird's legs a few times before snapping it taut, lassoing the legs up the animal's back at an unnatural angle. And then, shimmying the beast into the cooking bag by herself, she nearly failed. One attempt flipped the bird onto the floor before it finally nestled safely in the aluminum pan. She stuck the temperature gauge in the breast, sealed the bag, popped the thing into the oven, and waited for a juicy aroma to fill the condo. This was her first Thanksgiving after 30 years of marriage, a marriage that produced three kids, witnessed the deaths of a box turtle, five goldfish, and a mother-in-law, and resulted in a net gain of 50 pounds. The guests trickled in. First her parents, never on time but rather 45 minutes early, hobbled in carrying pumpkin pie and sweet potatoes. Are you giving thanks yet? Her dad shouted as he placed the pie and potatoes on the counter. We're here! Her mom pointed to his ear. Honey, your hearing aid. What? He shouted. Your hearing aid. He thinks I don't know, but every time we get in the car, he turns it off, says I talk too much. But I just turn the radio up and sing to my music. After 53 years of marriage, what's left to say? Her parents shuffled over to the living room and plopped down in their seats. Next, her middle daughter arrived, accompanied by an army-sized duffel bag. Who's in there? Dad. Dad, I had to cut off his legs to get him to fit. I hope you wrapped him in plastic. I'm not scrubbing blood out of the carpet, especially his. I drained him first, then cut off his legs. Sounds like quite a process. I hope you had enough time to study for midterms. Oh yeah, I studied while he drained in the tub. Well, at least you've learned how to multitask. Her oldest daughter and her daughter's boyfriend showed up a few minutes later. What have you got here? The mother lifted up the foil, revealing a green bean casserole that had seen better days. Was this your cat's bed? It's green bean casserole like we used to have. I seem to remember it being free of cat fuzz, the mother said as she pulled a clump of hairs off the fried onions. <laughs> God, everyone's so uptight around here. A little fur never hurt anyone. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, too. Finally, her youngest daughter barged in with a suitcase of beer. A haze of cigarette smoke surrounded her. Hey, were you born in a barn? Sorry, Mom. The mother gave her a hug and then held her at arm's length. Oh, you smell like an ashtray. Eau de Marlboro Rouge. It's all the rage in France. The mother got out a tray of celery sticks filled with canned cheese from the refrigerator and handed it to her. Here, take these to your grandparents and a couple of beers, too. And every so often, the mother willed herself from the couch to check the turkey's progress. At 24 pounds, it would take more than four hours to cook. After two hours had passed and all of the side dishes had been made, the turkey maintained its blinding white color, the same hue as her ex's ass. She started to worry. The oven was set to the, to the prescribed 400 degrees, and a wave of turkey-smelling heat blew back her bangs every time she opened the door, but somehow that turkey refused to tan. She turned the oven up to 425. Wasn't there a story in the Bible about a turkey that fed a whole village? The boyfriend asked. He was the, one, the only one in the condo not raised Catholic or anything for that matter. Babe, it was a, bra a basket of bread and fish, the oldest daughter said. Maybe I'm conflating the Bible and an Indian ghost story I heard. American Indian or red dot Indian, the grandfather asked. American. 
Aren't turkeys one of the stupidest animals on earth? The youngest daughter asked. I mean, don't they drown if they look up when it's raining? Everyone nodded. I like waddle, the grandmother said. She looked around at everyone as, ex as if expecting them to nod in agreement as they just had. She pressed on. The word sounds like it is, like a waddle, you know? Half the people nodded while the other people gulped down beer or crunched celery. Maybe we got a real stupid turkey, a turkey so stupid it doesn't know how to get cooked, the middle daughter asked. That makes no sense, the youngest said. It's probably the oven. Gas ovens can't be trusted. Maybe we should stick your head inside and find out. <laughs> Girls, the mother said, a turkey that big takes time to cook. In another hour, it should be golden brown. But the turkey was still white an hour later. As the clock ticked closer and closer to 9 p.m., the family got restless. All but three celery sticks had been eaten. All of the beer had been drunk. The youngest daughter was halfway through her second pack of the afternoon. The oldest daughter had made beer tabs into bracelets for everyone. And each of the football games was over. For a few minutes, no one spoke or moved. I told you, the oven's malfunctioned. It's a turkey itself. Something's wrong with it. It's stupid, the boyfriend said and then giggled. I'm goddamn hungry, their grandfather shouted. These cheesy celery things aren't cutting it anymore. I've got shreds of celery stuck between my teeth. He bared his teeth and sure enough, light green slivers sprouted throughout his mouth like tufts of grass. See, he shouted even louder. The grandmother flipped his hearing switch on. I'm starving, I want to eat, he said in a lower tone. This isn't Africa, for Christ's sake, he said, his voice at a whisper. Salmonella isn't something you want to mess with, the oldest said. You all can spend the night on the toilet, but I, for one, won't be a party to that. TBO, no thank you. So you'll serve us cat hair, but not rare turkey? That turkey's not rare, it's raw. And cat hair doesn't have the potential to kill you. If you're allergic, it does. What's TBO? Total blowout, Grandma. That happened to your grandpa once. We were in Cabo for our anniversary. Not too romantic, if you ask me. That's enough, the mother shouted. Someone come over here and help me get this thing out. The middle daughter helped her lug the massive bird onto the stovetop. It seemed heavier since she'd first put it in the oven. The mother pulled one side of the bag with a pair of tongs and cut a slit in the other side with a paring knife. A rush of steam puffed out of the bag. The smell was so powerful that she thought she must be inside the turkey among the stuffing. Somehow she'd gotten swallowed up by it, and now the turkey was consuming her. Soon it'd take a post-dinner nap and then treat itself to pumpkin pie, and tomorrow it would hit the Black Friday sales at the mall. But no, she was back in the kitchen, surrounded by her family who all stared at the glistening animal before them. It still looked as white as her ex's ass. The temperature ga gauge nestled down into the skin as if trying to bury itself. She poked the bird's legs and breast. It was hot and firm. She pulled out the carving knife, an electric serrated knife that had been a wedding present and held it poised above the breast. As she was about to press the whining blade down into the skin, she saw her ex's face like a constellation of 
bumps in the animal's skin. She moved in closer, not believing his eyes. But there he was, his handlebar mustache that he'd grown since college that made him look like an albino walrus that she'd fantasized about shaving in the night. His cleft chin that she had joked when they were first married looked like a garbanzo bean, and that at the end of the divorce had caused her to refer to him as butt face. And there was the permanent crease between his eyebrows, a crease he had stolen her wrinkle cream to try to iron out. She hesitated for just a moment. Was this a sign? Like those images of the Virgin Mary and burnt toast or Abe Lincoln and SpaghettiOs? Mom, do you see something on the turkey? It's still white if that's what you mean. Are you okay? I'm fine, everything's fine. She could do this. Her ex always claimed to let the knife do the work. She stood up straight, shook out her shoulders and arms and sliced through her ex's face. She wanted to cry, scream, laugh, flee, collapse, but instead she held her breath. As soon as a blade caught the skin, the temperature gauge shot out like a nipple and the turkey turned golden and crisp. The kitchen was silent, but for the buzzing of the electric knife. The family watched the mother carve slice after slice of turkey and heap it into piles of light and dark meat on the platter. She finished scraping the meat from the rib cage, feeling like a vulture as she pecked at the bones and left the carcass on the stovetop. They all sat down to eat and shoveled forkful after forkful of turkey, potatoes, green beans, cranberries, and bread into their mouths until they had to undo their belt buckles and unzip their pants, all except for the mother. She could not manage to take a single bite of turkey, no matter how hard she tried or how good the others said it was. Every few minutes, she glanced back at the bones collapsing into the aluminum pan, feeling every time that she had defiled sacred ground. Well, thank you to our four readers tonight. That was phenomenal. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.